Chapter 19 of George Mueller of Bristol. This is a LibriVox recording, which is in the public domain. George Mueller of Bristol by Arthur T. Pearson. Chapter 19. At evening time, light. The closing scene of this beautiful and eventful life history has an interest not altogether pathetic. Mr. Mueller seems like an elevated mountain on whose summit the evening sun shines in lingering splendor and whose golden peak rises far above the ordinary level and belongs to heaven more than earth, in the clear, cloudless calm of God. For May 1892, when the last mission tour closed, he devoted himself mainly to the work of the Scriptural Knowledge Institution and to preaching at Bethesda and elsewhere, as God seemed to appoint. His health was marvelous, especially considering how, when yet a young man, frequent and serious illnesses and general debility had apparently disqualified him from all military duty, and to many prophesied early death or hopeless succumbing to disease. He had been in tropic heat and arctic cold, in gales and typhoons at sea, and on journeys by rail, sometimes as continuously long as a sea voyage. He had borne the pest of fleas, mosquitoes, and even rats. He had endured changes of climate, diet, habits of life, and the strain of almost daily services, and come out of all unscathed. This man, whose health was never robust, had gone through labors that would try the mettle of an iron constitution. This man, who had many times been laid aside by illness, and sometimes for months, and who in 1837 had feared that a persistent head trouble might unhinge his mind, could say, in his ninety-second year, I have been able every day and all the day to work, and that with ease, as seventy years since. When the writer was holding meetings in Bristol in 1896, on an anniversary very sacred to himself, he asked his beloved father Mueller to speak at the closing meeting of the series in the Y.M.C.A. Hall, and he did so, delivering a powerful address of forty-five minutes on prayer in connection with missions, and giving his own life story in part with a vigor of voice and manner that seemed a denial of his advanced age. The marvelous preservation of such a man at such an age reminds one of Caleb, who at eighty-five could boast in God that he was as strong even for war as in the day that he was sent into the land as one of the spies. And Mr. Mueller himself attributed this preservation to three causes. First, the exercising of himself to have always a conscience void of offense, both toward God and toward men. Secondly, to the love he felt for the scriptures and the constant recuperative power they exercised upon his whole being and third to that happiness he felt in god and his work which relieved him of all anxiety and needless wear and tear in his labors the great fundamental truth that this heroic man stamped on his generation was that the living god is the same today and forever as yesterday and in all ages past and that, with equal confidence with the most trustful souls of any age, we may believe his word, and to every promise add, like Abraham, our Amen, it shall be so. When a few days after his death, Mr. E. H. Glennie, who is known to many as the beloved and self-sacrificing friend of North Africa Mission, 
passed through Barcelona, he found written in an album over his signature the words, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. And like the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews, quoting from the 102nd Psalm, we may say of Jehovah, while all else changes and perishes, Thou remainest, Thou art the same. Toward the close of life, Mr. Mueller, acting under medical advice, abated somewhat of his active labors, preaching commonly but once a Sunday. It was my privilege to hear him on the morning of the Lord's Day, March 22, 1896. He spoke on the 77th Psalm. Of course, he found here his favorite theme, prayer. And taking that as a fair specimen of his average preaching, he was certainly a remarkable expositor of Scripture even at 91 years of age. Later on, the outline of this discourse will be found. On Sunday morning, March 6, 1898, he spoke at Alma Road Chapel, and on the Monday evening following was at the prayer service at Bethesda, on both occasions in his usual health. On Wednesday evening following, he took his wanted place at the Orphan House prayer meeting and gave out the hymns, The Countless Multitude on High, and Will Sing of the Shepherd That Died. When he bade his beloved son-in-law good night, there was no outward sign of declining strength. He seemed to the last the vigorous old man and retired to rest as usual. It had been felt that one so advanced in years should have some night attended, especially as indications of heart weakness had been noticed of late, and he had yielded to that pressure of love and consented to such an arrangement after that night. But the consent came too late. He was never more to need human attendance or attention. On Thursday morning, March 10th, at about seven o'clock, the usual cup of tea was taken to his room. To the knock at the door there was no response, save an ominous silence. The attendant opened the door, only to find that the venerable patriarch lay dead on the floor beside the bed. He had probably risen to take some nourishment, a glass of milk and a biscuit being always put within reach. And while eating the biscuit, he had felt faint and fallen, clutching at the tablecloth as he felt, for it was dragged off with certain things that had lain on the table. His medical adviser, who was promptly summoned, gave as his opinion that he had died of heart failure some hour or two before he had been found by his attendant. Such a departure, even at such an age, produced a worldwide sensation. That man's moral and spiritual forces reached and touched the earth's ends, not in Bristol or in Britain alone, but across the mighty waters toward the sunrise and sunset was felt the responsive pulse-beat of a deep sympathy. Hearts bled all over the globe when it was announced by telegraph wire and ocean cable that George Mueller was dead. It was said of a great Englishman that his influence could be measured only by parallels of latitude. Of George Mueller, we may add, and by meridians of longitude. He belonged to the whole church and the whole world in a unique sense, and the whole race of man sustained a loss when he died. The funeral which took place on the Monday following was a popular tribute of affection, such as is seldom seen. Tens of thousands of people reverently stood along the route of the simple procession. Men left their workshops and offices. Women left their elegant homes or humble kitchens, all seeking to pay a last token of respect. Bristol had never before witnessed any such scene. 
A brief service was held in Orphan House No. 3, where over a thousand children met, who had for a second time lost a father, in front of the reading desk in the great dining room, a coffin of elm, studiously plain, and by request without floral offerings, contained all that was mortal of George Mueller, and on a brass plate was a simple inscription, giving the date of his death and his age. Mr. James Wright gave the address, reminding those who were gathered that, to all of us, even those who have lived nearest God, death comes while the Lord tarries, that it is blessed to die in the Lord, and that for believers in Christ there is a glorious resurrection waiting. The tears that ran down those young cheeks were more eloquent than any words, as a token of affection for the dead. The procession silently formed. Among those who followed the bier were four who had been occupants of that first orphan home in Wilson Street. The children's grief melted the hearts of spectators, and eyes unused to weeping were moistened that day. The various carriages bore the medical attendants, the relatives and connections of Mr. Mueller, the elders and deacons of the churches with which he was associated, and his staff of helpers in the work on Ashley Down. Then followed forty or fifty other vehicles with deputations from various religious bodies. At Bethesda, every foot of space was crowded, and hundreds sought in vain for admission. The hymn was sung which Mr. Mueller had given out at that last prayer meeting the night before his departure. Dr. McLean of Bath offered prayer, mingled with praise for such a long life of service and witness, of prayer and faith. And Mr. Wright spoke from Hebrews 13, 7 and 8. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. He spoke of those spiritual rulers and guides whom God sets over his people, and of the privilege of imitating their faith, calling attention to the two characteristics of his beloved father-in-law's faith. First, that it was based on that immovable rock of ages, God's written word. And secondly, that it translated the precepts and promises of that word into daily life. Mr. Wright made very emphatic Mr. Mueller's acceptance of the whole scriptures as divinely inspired. He had been wont to say to young believers, put your finger on the passage on which your faith rests, and had himself read the Bible from end to end nearly two hundred times. He fed on the Word, and therefore was strong. He found the center of that Word in the living person it enshrines, and his one ground of confidence was his atoning work. Always in his own eyes weak, wretched, and vile, unworthy of the smallest blessings, he rested solely on the merit and mediation of his great high priest. George Mueller cultivated faith. He used to say to his helpers in prayer and service, Never let enter your minds a shadow of doubt as to the love of the Father's heart or the power of the Father's arm. And he projected his whole life forward and looked at it in the light of the judgment day. Mr. Wright's address made prominent one or two other most important lessons, as, for example, that the Spirit bids us imitate not the idiosyncrasies or philanthropy of others, but their faith and he took occasion to remind his hearers that philanthropy was not the foremost aim or leading feature of Mr. Mueller's life, but above all else to magnify and glorify God, as still the living God, who, now as well as thousands of years ago, 
hears the prayers of his children, and helps those who trust him. He touchingly referred to the humility that led to Mr. Mueller to do the mightiest thing for God without self-consciousness, and showed that God can take up and use those who are willing to be only instruments. It was touchingly remarked at his funeral that he first confessed to feeling weak and weary in his work that last night of his earthly sojourn, and it seemed specially tender of the Lord not to allow that sense of exhaustion to come upon him until just as he was about to send his chariot to bear him to his presence. Mr. Mueller's last sermon at Bethesda Chapel, after a ministry of sixty-six years, had been from Second Corinthians 5.1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. It was as though he had some foretokens of his being about shortly to put off this his tabernacle. Evidently, he was not taken by surprise. He had foreseen that his days were fast completing their number. Seven months before his departure, he had remarked to his medical attendant, in connection with the irregularity of his pulse, it means death. Many of the dear orphans, as when the first Mrs. Mueller died, wrote asking that they might contribute toward the erection of a monument to the memory of their beloved benefactor. Already one dear young servant had gathered, for the purpose, over twenty pounds. In conformity with the known wishes of his father-in-law that only the simplest headstone be placed over his remains, Mr. Wright thought necessary to check the inflow of such gifts, the sum in hand being quite sufficient. Further urgent appeals were made both from British and American friends for the erection of some statue or other large visible monument or memorial, and in these appeals the local newspapers united. At length private letters led Mr. Wright to communicate with the public press as the best way at once to silence these appeals and express the ground of rejecting such proposals. He wrote as follows, you ask me, as one long and closely associated with the late Mr. George Mueller, to say what I think would be most in accordance with his own wishes as a fitting memorial of himself. Will not the best way of replying to this question be to let him speak for himself? First, when he erected Orphan House Number 1, and the question came what is the building to be called, he deliberately avoided associating his own name with it, and named it the new orphan house Ashley Down. To the end of his life he disliked hearing or reading the words Mueller's Orphanage. In keeping with this, for years, in every annual report, when referring to the orphanage, he reiterated the statement, the new orphan houses on Ashley Down, Bristol, are not my orphan houses. They are God's orphan houses. Second, for years, in fact, until he was nearly eighty years old, he steadily refused to allow any portrait of himself to be published, and only most reluctantly, for reasons which he gives with characteristic minuteness in the preface to preaching tours, did he at length give way on this point. Third, in the last published report, at page 66, he states, The primary object I had in view in carrying on this work, that is to say, that it might be seen that now, in the nineteenth century, God is still the living God, and that now, as well as thousands of years ago, He listens to the prayers of His children and helps those who trust in Him. Mr. Wright further remarked, I have been asked again and again lately as to whether the orphan work would go on. It is going on. 
Since the commencement of the year we have received between forty and fifty fresh orphans, and this week expect to receive more. The other four objects of the institution, according to the ability God gives us, are still being carried on. We believe that whatever God would do with regard to the future will be worthy of Him. We do not know much more, and do not want to. He knows what He will do. I cannot think, however, that the God who has so blessed the work for so long will leave our prayers as to the future unanswered. Mr. Benjamin Perry then spoke briefly, characterizing Mr. Mueller as the greatest personality Bristol had known as a citizen. He referred to his power as an expounder of Scripture, and to the fact that he brought to others for their comfort and support what had first been food to his own soul. He gave some personal reminiscences, referring, for instance, to his ability at an extreme old age still to work without hindrance, either mental or physical, free from rheumatism, ache or pain, and seldom suffering from exhaustion. He briefly described him as one who, in response to the infinite love of God, which called him from a life of sin to a life of salvation and service, wholly loved God above everybody and everything, so that his highest pleasure was to please and serve him. As an illustration of his humility, he gave an incident. When of late a friend had said, When God calls you home, it will be like a ship going into harbor, full sail. Oh, no, said Mr. Mueller. It is poor George Mueller who needs daily to pray, Hold thou me up in my goings, that my footsteps slip not. The close of such lives as those of Asa and Solomon were to Mr. Mueller a perpetual warning leading him to pray that he might never thus depart from the Lord in his old age. After prayer by Mr. J. L. Stanley, Colonel Molesworth gave out the hymn, "'Tis sweet to think of those at rest." And after another prayer by Mr. Stanley Arnott, the body was borne to its resting place in Arno's Vale Cemetery, and buried beside the bodies of Mr. Mueller's first and second wives, some eighty carriages joining in the procession to the grave. Everything from first to last was as simple and unostentatious as he himself would have wished. At the graveside, Colonel Molesworth prayed, and Mr. George F. Bergen read from 1 Corinthians 15, and spoke a few words upon the tenth verse, which so magnifies the grace of God both in what we are and what we do. Mr. E. K. Groves, nephew of Mr. Mueller, announced as the closing hymn the second given out by him at that last prayer meeting at the orphanage will sing of the shepherd that died. Mr. E. T. Davies then offered prayer, and the body was left to its undisturbed repose until the Lord shall come. Other memorial services were held at the Y.M.C.A. Hall, and very naturally at Bethesda Chapel, which brought to a fitting close this series of loving tributes to the departed. On the Lord's Day preceding the burial, in nearly all the city pulpits, more or less extended reference had been made to the life, the character, and the career of this beloved saint who had for so many years lived his irreproachable life in Bristol. Also the daily and weekly press teemed with obituary notices and tributes to his piety, worth, and work. From these words and ways of acting is it not evident that the only memorial that George Mueller cared about was that which consists in the effect of his example, Godward, upon his fellow men. Every soul converted to God, instrumentally, through his words or example, constitutes a permanent memorial to him as the Father in Christ of such an one. Every believer strengthened in faith 
instrumentally, through his words or example, constitutes a similar memorial to his spiritual teacher. He knew that God had already, in the riches of his grace, given him many such memorials, and he departed this life, as I well know, cherishing the most lively hope that he should greet above thousands more to whom it had pleased God to make him a channel of rich spiritual blessing. He used often to say to me, when he opened a letter in which the writer poured out a tale of sore pecuniary need and besought his help to an extent twice or three or ten times exceeding the sum total of his, Mr. Mueller's, earthly possessions at the moment, Ah, these dear people entirely miss the lesson I am trying to teach them, for they come to me instead of going to God. And if he could come back to us for an hour and listen to an account of what his sincerely admiring but mistaken friends are proposing to do to perpetuate his memory, I can hear him with a sigh exclaiming, Ah, these dear friends are entirely missing the lesson that I tried for seventy years to teach them, that a man can receive nothing except it be given him from above, and that, therefore, it is the blessed giver and not the poor receiver that is to be glorified. Yours faithfully, James Wright. End of chapter 19 of George Mueller of Bristol by Arthur T. Pearson